On New Year's Eve 1862, a bloodbath began in Middle Tennessee. Back on December 26th, Union General William S. Rosecrans had marched out from Nashville toward the town of Murfreesboro, where the main Confederate force in Middle Tennessee was located after they had earlier retreated from Kentucky. By December 30th, Rosecrans had reached the area of Murfreesboro, where the Confederate army was parked near Stones River. The battle that took place would end up being known by either of those two names, Murfreesboro or Stones River. Rosecrans was commanding what was then called the Union Army of the Cumberland, which, like most Union armies during this war, was named after a river. This army had well over 40,000 men to his Confederate opponent, Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee, Confederate armies being more commonly named after states. And Bragg's Army of Tennessee had about 35,000 or so men. So, as usual, the Confederates were outnumbered in battle, but not by nearly as much of a margin as they often were in the larger battles of this war. Plus, the Confederates had a decided edge in cavalry at this battle, which Bragg hoped would even things out a bit more. Confederate cavalry raids harassed the Army of the Cumberland as it marched towards Murfreesboro, but did not stop them. And by December 30th, the Bluecoats were within striking distance of the Confederate forces outside the town. That evening, an interesting thing happened. The bands of the two armies dueled before their soldiers would, starting the following day. Each band played their preferred songs, you know, Yankee Doodle and so on on the Union side, Dixie and some other favorites on the Confederate side, until eventually one side started playing the song Home Sweet Home, which was a song beloved by the soldiers of both armies. And then, as historian James McPherson puts it, quote, "...soon thousands of Yanks and Rebs who tomorrow would kill each other were singing the familiar words together." End quote. In planning for the following day's battle, both commanders ironically planned to attack their opponent's right flank to try to turn it and to try to get around it and cut off their lines of supply and reinforcement. And so it just came down to a matter of timing, and the Confederates moved first in the early morning hours of New Year's Eve morning, the last day of 1862. Basically, the Confederate commanders had decided to skip breakfast that morning while the Union commanders had not, which is one of those seemingly mundane little choices that can often make the difference of who has the advantage and the initiative in a battle. In their attack, the Confederates were initially successful, gaining surprise over most of the Union units they were facing, and they drove the Union lines back three miles in the course of a few hours. William Rosecrans, however, managed to hold his forces together. And many historians say this is really the high point of Rosecrans's career. James McPherson says that, quote, Old Rosie was at his bulldog best in the crisis, riding from one part of the line to another, his uniform spattered with blood from a staff officer beheaded by a cannonball while riding alongside Rosecrans, end quote. Also, the division of Philip Sheridan in the center-right of the Union line earned a lot of the credit for stopping the Confederate advance at a very high cost to themselves, in part because Sheridan had been smart enough to anticipate a possible early Confederate attack and had thus had his troops up and ready to go earlier than the rest of the Union forces. 
On the Confederate side, Braxton Bragg ordered John Breckinridge's division to attack with everything they had on a small wooded area known as Round Forest, which Bragg believed was the key to Union defenses. Breckenridge launched a total of four major attacks on the area, and despite this and very heavy losses on both sides, the Union held Round Forest, which the soldiers renamed Hell's Half Acre. As night fell, Braxton Bragg was sure he'd won a major victory, and in fact telegraphed the news to Richmond. But Rosecrans and his army were not throwing in the towel, and they weren't going anywhere. On New Year's Day, Rosecrans had one of his divisions occupy a key piece of high ground along Stones River, but other than that and a few minor kind of exploratory attacks by the Confederates, the day was quiet, for the most part a tacit truce for the holiday. Bragg still thought he'd won, and was just waiting for the Union Army to retreat. But they didn't go anywhere. So on January 2nd, Bragg launched an attack on the Union position on the high ground near the river, which initially seemed to be going well until a massive Union artillery barrage followed by an infantry counterattack drove them off, again at very great cost to both sides. On January 3rd, Braxton Bragg yielded to reality. In fact, about a third of his entire army were casualties of one one form or another, killed, wounded, missing, captured, and his battered army retreated southward. Confederate hopes to hold Middle Tennessee were largely finished. As was so often the case in Civil War battles, the quote-unquote victor, in this case the Union, was themselves so damaged by winning their victory that they were unable to effectively pursue and finish off the defeated army. By the way, this nasty battle, and one of the lesser-known battles considering how relatively bloody it was, this nasty battle is the subject of the Steel Driver's song River Runs Red, which I mentioned in my episode a little while back on some of my favorite anti-war songs, and I'll be sure to link to a live version of this song, very well done, on YouTube in the show notes for this episode. Total Union casualties for the Battle of Stones River added up to a little bit under 13,000, while total Confederate casualties were just under 12,000. As was typical of most Civil War battles, less than 15% of the casualties were actually confirmed dead, and the remainder were made up of various proportions of wounded, captured, or missing. The battle was rather like Antietam in a lot of ways, because, for example, in tactical terms, this battle was really a bloody draw. Neither side really decisively won the immediate battle. But like Antietam, it ended up being a Union strategic victory because it resulted in a Confederate withdrawal from the area and, in this case, prevented the Confederacy from reestablishing control of the middle part of Tennessee in the same way that Antietam had destroyed Lee's plans to invade Maryland and perhaps even bring it into the Confederacy. Now, this battle actually has the highest percentage of casualties for both sides of any major Civil War battle. So again, in bloodiness and costliness, it's right up there with Antietam, and in fact has higher casualties than Antietam. And the reason, though, that Antietam is more famous, aside from Eastern battles tend to be more famous anyway, is that unlike the more famous battle in Maryland, the fighting at Stones River was spread out over three days rather than compressed into a single day, as was the case with Antietam. But it was just horrific carnage, yet again. As the song says, The river runs red, 
No winners or losers when you count the dead. CJ here, your renaissance man for the new Dark Age, back with another installment in our Not-So-Civil War series. This is episode 137 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and it is number six in the Not-So-Civil War series. And the remainder of this episode is going to be talking about operations in the West, primarily in and around the Mississippi River. A lot of it centered on the campaign by the Union to take the Confederate stronghold at Vicksburg. But before I get into that, I have some important announcements. One is that I've made a change to how the Patreon account is set up for this show. And if you're already a member of the Patreon contribution community for the Dangerous History Podcast, you've probably already heard about this. I've posted about it in the private Facebook group and in Patreon as well. I even made a little Patreon bonus episode where I talked about the change and explained some of why I did it, and I also talked a bit about kind of future plans going forward with this show. But what I did, and feedback has been mostly very positive from those who are already contributors to this show on Patreon, what I did was I switched the contribution method from the previous method I had been using ever since I set up a Patreon account for this show, which was per-episode contribution, and I've switched it instead to a flat per-month contribution. And I did this for a variety of reasons that um, I explained in that bonus episode that I've released in Patreon. But long story short, I think it'll be beneficial both for me as the content producer and you as the contributor to just have it be a flat monthly donation. So that whatever donation amount you set is consistent both for you and for me, and it's more predictable for both of us. And, you know, there's other benefits besides, I think, to doing it this way. So from now on, instead of me saying a dollar per episode or more to get the Patreon bonus episodes and access to the private Facebook group, the new thing is $5 per month. Okay, so for $5 per month or more, you're certainly welcome to contribute more per month if you like and all that, but the minimum to get the basic bonus stuff right now is five bucks per month. I might add higher levels of membership, of contributions in the future, you know, maybe have a level of 10 a month and so on, but I won't do that unless and until I have kind of additional benefits that I can share with those who choose to contribute higher amounts. For right now, it's just minimum five a month, and if you want to give me more, that's fine, but it's not required. But anyway, if you already were a Patreon supporter of this show under the per-episode contribution method, then what seems to have happened since I made the change over this past weekend is that the default setting, what it did with you is it carried your previous per-episode dollar amount contribution over to now be your new per-month contribution. So, for example, if you had previously donated a buck per episode, it now has you kind of by default at a buck per month. Now, a lot of you have already switched and updated your contribution to adjust it for the new 
policy for the new way of doing things. But if you haven't, please do so at your soonest convenience. So if, for example, previously you had been contributing under $5 per episode, you now want to adjust it up to at least $5 per month so that you stay good with everything. Also, a new thing I want to explain for those of you who are Patreon contributors is that under the old per episode setting, it charged you in arrears, meaning it charged you retroactively for the month that had just ended. Because obviously, if I'm doing it per episode, Patreon needed to know how many episodes I'd published in that month. And they couldn't do that looking ahead. But now, under the flat dollar amount per episode contribution way of doing things, it charges you in advance. It charges you up front at the start of the month just so you understand what's going on and what the changes are. And if you're someone who signs up from now on as a new contributor, it will charge you your first month up front, and then I think it's first of the month automatically after that. But I just wanted everybody to understand the changes, whether you currently are a Patreon supporter of this show or are considering becoming one. Speaking of which, I do have some Patreon shoutouts. I have several awesome individuals who have signed up to support this show since my last episode that I made. And so big thanks go out to James, to Tyler, to Joshua, to another James, and to John. Thank you all very, very much for signing up to help support this show at Patreon. And just as a reminder to everybody who either is a Patreon supporter or is considering becoming one, I am still hard at work behind the scenes on the Naval Warfare episode bonus episode attached to the Not-So-Civil War series that'll be just for Patreon contributors to this show at the $5 per month or more level. And as so often happens, this episode is turning into a bigger thing than I initially anticipated, so it'll be a fairly big episode with a lot of different elements to it. As so often happens, as I start to research something, I start to realize there's more to it than I thought, and then, of course, the episode plans get correspondingly bigger. But it should be pretty awesome once I finally get it done. It's just turning into more of a, more of a research and planning project than I had anticipated. So I guess I kind of got Dunning-Krugered in a way. Also, I have a few more people to thank uh, for getting me things off my Amazon wish list. And as always, I'll have links to both the Patreon page for this show and to my Amazon wish list on the show notes for this episode. But thank you to Ken for getting me the book Socrates, A Man for Our Times by Paul Johnson. I'm a Socrates fan. I'm in general a Paul Johnson fan. I haven't read a ton by him, but he's usually a very good writer. And while I don't agree with him on everything, I usually find his writing, his thoughts at least worth entertaining and thought-provoking. And so I'm looking forward to reading that book. Might not get to it until I get through this whole not-so-civil war, but it's on my pile. And then some other books I got recently that I'm also interested in reading. Thanks to Tim for getting me The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs, and also for getting me The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe. Both of those are books I've heard about a lot for a long time, but have never actually got around to sitting down and reading. And I'm one of those people that I always want to eventually read a book myself if I hear a lot about it. So I'm definitely looking forward to reading those as well. And again, when I'll get to this, you should see the backlog of books I have now. I've got my giant mountain of Civil War reading materials on one table, and then on another table I have just kind of like my backlog of books that either I've gotten myself or that you all have been kind enough to get for me off my wish list. And it's just enormous. It's absolutely enormous. So we'll see if and when I can ever kind of um, catch up on all this, but I love it. So thank you very much to those of you who've helped out by helping to contribute to this mountain. 
Also, one more announcement about a new affiliate program I have, and that is I've recently signed up to have an affiliate account with Abe Books. So for any of you who, for whatever reason, don't want to use Amazon to purchase your books, there's now another way you can order books and also kick a few nickels back to the Dangerous History Podcast, and you'll see the affiliate link for Abe Books in the sidebar of the website, right down below where the Patreon link is, and the Amazon link is the link for Abe Books. So go through that link, then do your shopping at Abe Books, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small percentage at no additional cost to you. All right, on to Vicksburg. is the nail that holds the South's two halves together. Jefferson Davis. In the second half of 1862 and the first half of 1863, out in the western theater of the Civil War, the Union Army of the Tennessee, referring to the Tennessee River in this case, under the command of General Ulysses Grant, targeted Vicksburg, Mississippi, the Gibraltar of the Confederacy, as it was often called, the last major obstacle in the way of Union control of the Mississippi River, other than Port Hudson, Louisiana, where Confederate defenses were, like Vicksburg, situated on high, advantageous bluffs overlooking the river, though the position and the fortifications at Port Hudson weren't quite as strong either geographically or in terms of their military capability as at Vicksburg. Vicksburg really was the key. Vicksburg, Mississippi is located on the eastern bank of the Mississippi River at a spot where the river makes a very dramatic horseshoe sort of a bend. Now already, this is a key geographical feature for anyone looking to control this watery highway, but when you add in the fact that there are very high bluffs at Vicksburg overlooking the river, you really begin to see what a defensible piece of real estate this is in terms of controlling that stretch of water. The strength of the geography obviously wasn't lost on the Confederate military engineers and planners, and early in the war they'd heavily fortified the defenses at Vicksburg. Opposite the bluffs of Vicksburg, the piece of land that kind of pokes out into the middle of the inside of the horseshoe of the river is called the DeSoto Peninsula, named after the famous Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto, whose expedition, of course, were the first Europeans documented to have encountered the mighty Mississippi River. Now, that's imposing and important enough geography, but there's a lot of things around Vicksburg that also make it difficult to approach. If this was simply a dramatic bend in the river with some high bluffs overlooking it, you could understand how it'd be very easy to defend against riverborne attacks trying to take the position. If all of the land around Vicksburg was nice dry land and flats and so on and so forth, it still wouldn't be that hard to simply amass a large enough land force and surround Vicksburg on the landward side and eventually force it to submit. But 
all around Vicksburg from most directions, the terrain itself is extremely difficult and problematic to operate large armies in. For example, north and east of the city lies the Mississippi Delta, which is a network of smaller rivers, bayous, and swamps, very difficult and hostile terrain with water moccasins and all kinds of things that make it really problematic to, for example, move armies of tens of thousands of soldiers around easily. Now that I've hopefully given you an idea of what the situation was in and around Vicksburg, Before continuing further with the story of the various Union efforts to try and take the town, which eventually succeeded after much difficulty and setback, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the key generals in this theater of the war during this period of the war, say from the second half of 1862 into the first half of 1863. Now, obviously, one of the key figures in this whole thing, probably the most important ultimately, is Ulysses Grant. And I talked about him a bit already, a little bit about his background and so on. I think this was in episode two of this series, Upping the Ante. So I won't rehash his kind of bio here, but obviously we'll be getting more detail about some of his operations. This is really the part of the war that makes Ulysses Grant the most successful Union general of the war and puts him on the path to becoming ultimately the overall military commander of all Union forces. But I'll mention a bit about some of the other generals who have important roles in this theater of the war and in one way or another tying into this episode and its implications. So first, some generals for the Confederacy. We have Braxton Bragg, who lived from 1817 to 1876. He was, of course, the Confederate commander at the Battle of Stones River that I talked about at the beginning of this episode. Bragg was born in North Carolina and, as a young man, attended West Point, where he graduated fifth out of a class of 50, which was the class of 1837. He had served with distinction during the war with Mexico, like so many other Civil War generals on both sides, and had left the military in 1856 to run a sugar plantation in Louisiana. Like a lot of Confederate military leaders and top politicians, he had actually opposed secession. But, like so many of them, after his state seceded, Bragg, who was then an officer of the Louisiana State Militia, was rapidly promoted to general of Louisiana Militia, and soon thereafter was commissioned as a general in the Confederate Army. He performed well under Albert Sidney Johnson at the Battle of Shiloh, after which Jefferson Davis gave Bragg the highest rank in the Confederate Army, that of full general. I think there were only six or seven of these uh, commissioned during the entire war. Bragg commanded what was initially known as the Army of Mississippi in the West, later renamed the Army of Tennessee. Again, Confederates tended to name their armies after states. Union generals tended to name their army after rivers. So here it's Army of Mississippi, not of the Mississippi, which is a a Union army. I know it's kind of confusing, but because a lot of the states, and especially in this part of the country, the name of the state is basically like one of its major rivers or something. When he took command of this army, he was carrying out operations in Kentucky, trying to hold Kentucky and bring it into the Confederacy. But after the Battle of Perryville, Bragg had to retreat, pull his army out of Kentucky and into Tennessee, and that's, of course, where Stone's River occurred. After Stone's River, he mostly continued to lose battles, winning only one significant one at Chattanooga. The whole time, he battled not just with Union troops, he battled with his own subordinates, who openly tried to get Bragg removed from command. 
Braxton Bragg may have been the most intensely unpopular and hated man in either army in this entire war, and not just by his fellow generals, but by his own rank-and-file soldiers as well. One soldier who'd served under Bragg in the Army of Tennessee wrote of him, quote, None of General Bragg's soldiers ever loved him. They had no faith in his ability as a general. He was looked upon as a merciless tyrant. Bragg was never a good feeder or commissary general. Rations with us were always scarce. No extra rations were ever allowed to the Negroes who were with us as servants. No coffee or whiskey or tobacco were ever allowed to be issued to the troops. If they obtained these luxuries, they were not from the government. These luxuries were withheld in order to crush the very heart and spirit of his troops. We were crushed. He loved to crush the spirit of his men. The more of a hangdog look they had about them, the better was General Bragg pleased. End quote. Now, that's an absolutely horrible evaluation on the part of one subordinate. And all evidence seems to indicate this was a commonly held attitude towards Bragg. And whether it's true or not that Bragg was deliberately trying to crush the spirit of his men, I think it's unlikely that he was deliberately trying to ruin his own men's morale. But he's clearly an incompetent enough leader and commander and manager that he either doesn't know that his actions are having this effect on his men or he doesn't care. And I've been in a few little leadership positions here and there in my life in various ways, never anything like commanding a big army, obviously. But if you somehow get wind that a lot of your subordinates think you like really have it in for them and want to make them miserable, that's when you really need to do something to kind of reevaluate your situation and reevaluate your approach. Because even if it's completely not true that you're not deliberately trying to ruin morale, if that's the impression you're giving your subordinates... You suck as a manager. You suck as a leader. You suck as a commander. Basically, Bragg was even more strict and stern and authoritarian than was Stonewall Jackson. But unlike Jackson, Bragg royally sucked at winning battles. Stonewall Jackson was also obviously very hard on his men. But here's the thing. Number one, he did occasionally allow them indulgences of kind of R&R and that sort of thing. And number two, he won freaking battles a lot. And it's amazing how much that can actually help restore morale after, you know, tough marches with inadequate supplies and draconian discipline. But then you, you win a huge battle, you know, your men can kind of live with that a lot of the time. But if you're not even winning battles, if you're mostly losing battles, imagine what that does. Well, after a series of defeats, Bragg was removed from his command finally, and many military historians ever since have said far too late, should have been removed a long time ago. But he was removed from his command and recalled to Richmond to be a military advisor to Jefferson Davis, where he apparently did do some good at kind of organizational and bureaucratic things, cleaning up some corruption, doing some work on making things more efficient, um, eliminating waste, that kind of stuff. Historians have argued ever since over just how much of the blame for the Confederate failure out West was due solely to Braxton Bragg as a general. I don't think anyone really disputes that he was not a very good general, but it's like how much of it is just his fault. And my own take after reading multiple sources dealing with this is that while he may not deserve all of the blame, for example, you could certainly give some of the blame to many of the other Confederate generals in the West, many of whom were not very good. And you could also give some of the blame to Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis in deciding to always put priority on operations in and around Virginia. 
And this then obviously preventing a lot of resources and manpower from being used to help the Confederate forces out in the West. Setting that all aside, I think it's pretty clear that for his often kind of dunderheaded tactics, his suckiness as a leader of men, and his inability to get along at all with most of his fellow Confederate generals, I think Braxton Bragg certainly does deserve at least a fairly large share of the blame. And then again, you can pull the camera back a little bit further and say, well, so does Jefferson Davis for not just removing this guy from command a lot earlier in the war when it should have been clear that he was not a good choice for this. And I just have to say, this is one area where I think Lincoln was clearly more effective as a chief executive, you know, setting aside questions of motives and ideologies and and uh, morality and whatever, just from a pure effectiveness point of view. I think Lincoln, in many ways, was clearly a more effective chief executive than Jefferson Davis. And one area where we see this here is Lincoln's willingness to remove and replace people more quickly after they'd shown that they were unfit for a particular job. After the war, Bragg would work in kind of engineering-related jobs having to do with running railroads and working on harbors and things like this, and seems to have been pretty competent at that. But he's often ranked as one of the least capable and successful Civil War generals, and this is one of those cases where I think the conventional wisdom has it pretty much right. The next general I want to talk about is John C. Pemberton. Not to be confused with John S. Pemberton, who was the founder of Coca-Cola, and to whom, as far as I know, John C. Pemberton is no relation. But John C. Pemberton lived from 1814 to 1881. He was born in Philadelphia. Yes, born and raised a Yank. Not common for a Confederate general. He attended West Point and graduated around the middle of his class, which was 1837. He served in the Second Seminole War, something he had in common with his fellow Confederate General Joseph Johnston, and like so many other Civil War generals, fought in the war against Mexico and then also participated in the small-scale operations against the remnant of the Seminole Indians in Florida, which is sometimes called the Third Seminole War in the 1850s. Pemberton rose, if I remember correctly, to the rank of major in the U.S. Army, but in 1861, surprisingly, resigned his commission to go fight for the South. The reason? Well, despite being born and raised a northerner, despite having two brothers who actually fought in the Union Army in the war, Pemberton had married a southern woman years back and had also spent a fair amount of his military career stationed in the South, which I think it's more the wife than the being stationed there because a lot of other Union generals had been stationed in the South quite a bit prior to the Civil War. But Pemberton was not the most inspiring or competent commander in most of the actions in which he was um, an officer. He was often disliked and distrusted by a lot of Southerners because of his Yankee background. And really, more than that, I mean, his performance should have caused him to be probably removed earlier in the war than he was. And he was actually given a very important job. And really what happened was Jefferson Davis apparently thought it was very important to keep him around in a prominent position so that Pemberton could serve as a token Yankee example of a Yankee in a high position in the Confederate Army. By 1862, he'd risen to the rank of lieutenant general in the Confederate Army and was put in charge of the so-called Department of Mississippi in eastern Louisiana, which was centered around the stretch of the river around Vicksburg. 
So he would be the Confederate commander in charge of one of the most important pieces of strategic real estate in the entire Confederacy. This guy who primarily got his job because he was a token Yankee. So he'll be the guy, plot spoiler, who throws in the towel to Grant at Vicksburg. And after that, he would spend several months as a POW and later would be sent back south as part of a prisoner exchange. But he would be given no more major postings or assignments by the Confederate government for the rest of the war. And the last Confederate general I want to talk a little bit about here is Joseph Johnston. Joseph Johnston lived from 1807 to 1891. He had a lot in common with Robert E. Lee, except in terms of tactical preference. Johnston was always more of a cautious defensive fighter. Lee, of course, always more audacious and aggressive. And honestly, I've often thought that Johnston may, despite not being as flashy and inspiring as a Lee or a Stonewall Jackson, Johnston may have been a better choice for the overall Confederate command, simply because What they really needed, considering how badly outnumbered they were, was someone who was cautious and defensive and who focused above all else on keeping the army from getting badly damaged. But anyway, among the many things Johnston had in common with Robert E. Lee, he was born in Virginia, he attended West Point, and in fact graduated the same class of West Point as Robert E. Lee. Johnston graduated 13th in the class of 1829, the same class in which Lee famously graduated 2nd. In the 1830s, Johnston served in the Second Seminole War in Florida, which, by the way, side note, I covered way, way back in Dangerous History Podcast episode 24. And as I often say of those earlier episodes, the production quality is nowhere near to my current standard because I was learning by doing, but I stand behind the heart of the content. Johnston, of course, like so many other Civil War generals, served in the Mexican War in the 1840s and continued his career as a U.S. Army officer right up till the eve of the Civil War, rising ultimately to the rank of Brigadier General in the U.S. Army, which meant that at the time that the Deep South states seceded, Johnston was actually of a higher rank in the U.S. Army than Robert E. Lee was. However, again, kind of like Robert E. Lee, when his home state, Virginia, seceded after Fort Sumter, Johnston resigned his commission in the U.S. Army to go with his home state. And Johnston was actually the highest-ranking U.S. Army officer to resign and join the Confederacy. By August of 1861, he'd risen to the rank of full general, which was the highest military rank in the Confederate Army and is basically the equivalent to a modern four-star general. And Johnston was placed in charge of the defense of Northern Virginia. However, as we mentioned back in part two of this series, during the Peninsula Campaign fighting against the uh, Army of the Potomac led by George McClellan, Johnston was wounded and was replaced by Robert E. Lee. After Johnston recovered from his wounds, he was placed in command of the Confederacy's Department of the West, which made him the ranking commander above Braxton Bragg and John Pemberton during this period we're covering this episode, like the Battle of Stones River and the Vicksburg Campaign. After Braxton Bragg was relieved of command of the Army of Tennessee, Johnston was placed in command of that army and commanded the attempt to try to prevent General William Tecumseh Sherman from marching on Atlanta, which of course is something we'll cover in a future episode. However, plot spoiler, Davis removed Johnston from command before Sherman actually closed in on Atlanta. After the war, Johnston obviously lived for quite a while, 
into his 80s, and he served as a congressman for a term, worked in railroads, and served as a railroad commissioner in the Cleveland administration. And a fair number of these generals before and or after the war were involved with railroads. And in part, it was, again, because of that strong engineering component of the West Point curricula at the time gave them a skill set that was suitable to being involved in building and running railroads. The whole division of Confederate command, the kind of structure and organization of the high command in the Mississippi theater of the war was kind of unclear and problematic, and the personalities of the various high-ranking commanders in that theater were oftentimes incompatible in various ways, and it really kind of messed things up. And to add more problems to it, Jefferson Davis had a tendency to intervene personally in the Western theater of the war to a greater extent. Whereas on the Union side, Lincoln largely left the Western commanders alone for at least the first few years of the war, and this allowed them to kind of work out a coherent strategy by trial and error without having Lincoln trying to micromanage things so much. So in the Mississippi theater on the Confederate side, there was this kind of division of various parts of the military operations between Johnston, Bragg, and Pemberton that would just be kind of problematic. And historians Murray and Sia describe it this way in their book, A Savage War. Quote, Johnston, in overall command of Southern forces from Tennessee through Mississippi, Bragg with the Army of Tennessee, and John Pemberton in command at Vicksburg. It was not a workable arrangement. Johnston refused to exercise full responsibility for the areas he supposedly controlled. Bragg added nothing in terms of operational or strategic vision. Moreover, far removed from the Western theater, but still unable to resist micromanaging, Davis disregarded the chain of command and gave Pemberton instructions without informing Johnson, end quote. Confederate high command was simply not clear on any kind of a unified strategy to defend the stronghold of Vicksburg and the overall area from Union attacks. Davis thought the important thing was to actually protect the city itself, whereas Johnston thought that the most important thing was holding together Pemberton's army, even if that meant abandoning the site of the city itself if it became untenable. Pemberton was left in a situation with unclear, somewhat contradictory instructions, so basically he decided to follow Davis's preference of staying put and holding the city. And this ultimately made him vulnerable to a siege if a Union army could get close enough to kind of surround the area. And the vulnerability to a siege was just made worse by the fact that Pemberton had failed to stock Vicksburg sufficiently with various types of provisions and supplies to withstand a serious siege. Now, a few generals I'll mention for the Union side that have important roles in this theater and time period of the war. The first is William S. Rosecrans, who lived from 1819 to 1898. He's got a weird last name that's apparently anglicized Dutch in origin. He was born in Ohio and graduated from West Point, fifth in his class, class of 1842. He spent most of his pre-Civil War career primarily as a military engineer and was one of the few American career officers of his generation who didn't see any combat in the Mexican War at all, as he was posted to West Point during those years. He resigned his commission in the U.S. Army in 1854 and was fairly successful in the coal and oil industries. 
After Fort Sumter, he returned to military service and initially did well in western Virginia and in some battles out further west, such as the Second Battle of Corinth in Mississippi. And of course, he also commanded the Union Army of the Cumberland at the Battle of Stones River, as we heard at the beginning of this episode. Later on, he was made commander of the Union Army of the Mississippi. However, his personality kept getting him into conflict with important people like Ulysses Grant and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and following a major defeat at the Battle of Chickamauga in September of 1863, Rosecrans was removed from command of the Army of the Mississippi and was transferred to unimportant posts where little action was taking place for the rest of the war. He's an interesting guy, though, in a lot of ways. He's just very unusual in terms of his background and personality and so on. Historian James McPherson writes of Rosecrans that he, quote, "...was a study in paradox, a man of bulldog courage. He seemed reluctant to get into a fight. Slow and methodical in preparation, he moved quickly once he started. A convivial drinking man, he was a devout Catholic who loved to argue theology with his staff officers." End quote. After the war, Rosecrans had an interesting and active career, including running railroads, briefly being the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, and being a two-term Democratic congressman from California, where he relocated for a lot of his years after the war. By the way, after the Civil War, he had bought a 16,000-acre ranch in the Los Angeles Basin for, get this, $2.50 per acre, even adjusted for inflation. Wow. And the next Union general I want to mention is William Tecumseh Sherman, who lived from 1820 to 1891. Sherman was born in Ohio and attended West Point, where he got a reputation as being a very intelligent student, but one who didn't care much about formalities and rules and protocol and so on. And as such, he ended up graduating, I believe, sixth in his class due to demerits when he should have graduated higher just based on his grades alone. I think he should have been at least fourth. He served as a junior officer in the Second Seminole War, but during the Mexican War didn't really see any action because he was posted to an administrative job in California after the territory had already been taken by U.S. forces. By 1853, Sherman had risen to the rank of captain in the U.S. Army, but dissatisfied with his military career, he resigned his commission. He lived for several years in California, where he was involved in various business ventures that went nowhere, um, survived two shipwrecks, and then tried his hand briefly at lawyering in Kansas, but was not successful there either. In 1859, he took a job that seemed to fit him much better as superintendent of the Louisiana State Seminary of Learning and Military Academy. There's an interesting combo, which was the institution of higher learning that eventually evolved into LSU, by the way. Between that job and some of his earlier military postings, he had actually spent a lot of his adult life in the South and seems to have had no real problem with slavery itself at all. But when the southern states began to secede from the United States, he thought it was crazy. He wrote to a secessionist friend of his in Virginia as the southern states were seceding, quote, You people of the South don't know what you are doing. This country will be drenched in blood, and God only knows how it will end. It is all folly, madness, a crime against civilization. You speak so lightly of war, you don't know what you're talking about. War is a terrible thing. You mistake, too, the people of the North. They are a peaceable people, but an earnest people, and they will fight, too. They are not going to let this country be destroyed without a mighty effort to save it. Besides, where are your men and appliances of war to contend against them? 
The North can make a steam engine, locomotive, or railway car. Hardly a yard of cloth or pair of shoes can you make. You are rushing into war with one of the most powerful, ingeniously mechanical, and determined people on Earth, right at your doors. You are bound to fail. Only in your spirit and determination are you prepared for war. In all else, you are totally unprepared with a bad cause to start with. At first, you will make headway, but as your limited resources begin to fail, shut out from the markets of Europe as you will be, your cause will begin to wane. If your people will but stop and think, they must see in the end that you will surely fail. End quote. Needless to say, Sherman resigned his job at the Louisiana Military Academy in early 1861, and from there briefly ran a railroad company in Missouri. After Fort Sumter, though, he offered his services to the U.S. Army, and he was one of the very few people, as the quote I read to you before indicated, and other things he said and wrote indicated as well, he was one of the very few people who, all the way back at the very start in early 1861, believed, correctly of course, that this war would end up being very long, very bloody, and costly and destructive. And to be fair, he'd have more than his fair share of contribution to it being that way. Sherman was at the First Battle of Bull Run, shortly after which he was sent west. In 1862 and 63, he was Grant's main subordinate in the battles and campaigns to seize control of the Mississippi River. In 1864, he'd be placed in command of Union forces in the West and would famously capture Atlanta and destroy it and practice scorched-earth tactics against the people of Georgia and the Carolinas, things that included the burning of towns and homes and destruction of food supplies and so on. After the Civil War, he was promoted and ended up being the military commander of American forces in the West during a lot of the key years of the Plains Indian Wars. We'll get to his operations of total war in Georgia and the Carolinas in 1864 and 5 in future episodes in this series. But that's it for now as far as Union generals I wanted to specifically talk a little bit about. I had already talked about Grant a bit a few episodes back. Vicksburg is the key. The war can never be brought to a close until that key is in our pocket. Abraham Lincoln. The Union had to make a lot of attempts at taking Vicksburg before they finally were successful. Union Admiral David Farragut had, after capturing New Orleans back in May of 1862, sailed up the Mississippi River all the way to Vicksburg and attacked the city in June and July, but Vicksburg defenders fought him off. Farragut also began working on a plan to dig a canal across the DeSoto Peninsula so that Union ships on the Mississippi could bypass Confederate defenses, but he ran into so much difficulty from the heat and the disease and the harsh environment that he was soon forced to halt the project. It became clear that naval power alone could not take Vicksburg, and Farragut was happy to sail back down towards bluer, saltier waters. 
By the way, for a lot more on the exploits of Farragut and many other things besides, stay tuned if you're a Patreon supporter of this show for my In the Works, relatively coming up soon, Patreon bonus episode on the naval aspects of the war. I know I've been talking about that one for a while. It's just one of those topics that happens where you start digging into it and you end up really going down a rabbit hole. Who knows, it might even end up being a two-part series, the naval side of the Civil War. In the fall of 1862, Union General-in-Chief Henry Halleck gave Ulysses Grant, who was by then commander of the Union Army of the Tennessee, the job of taking Vicksburg. As briefly mentioned in a previous episode, Grant made his first attempt at taking Vicksburg in December of 1862. He moved his army to Holly Springs in northern Mississippi and then launched a two-pronged attack aimed at Vicksburg. Grant ordered Sherman, with about 32,000 men, to move from Memphis on December 20th via water transport to land at Chickasaw Bluffs to attack Vicksburg from the northwest, while Grant would march southward with about 40,000 men from Holly Springs to menace the city from the north, and he thought he might even be able to bait Confederate forces into coming out from the city's defenses to fight him. But Grant's moves were defeated when Confederate cavalry took advantage of the Union Army's dependence on very long and vulnerable supply lines. One historian, by the way, has estimated that a typical Union force of 40,000 men needed 250 tons of supplies per day. Okay, so the Confederate cavalry understood this vulnerability, and some skillful cavalry commanders launched raids that so badly disrupted Grant's logistical support that he had to call off the attack entirely, with his main infantry force having never even engaged in a single major battle. Nathan Bedford Forrest, whom I'll undoubtedly talk about more in the future, played a key role in the Confederate cavalry operations that frustrated this attempt at taking Vicksburg. The Union would have to use large amounts of manpower and resources in this theater, doing things like protecting and constantly repairing railroads and protecting waterways, which always remained vulnerable to attack and harassment by Confederate cavalry and by irregular partisans. The result was that the Confederates were able to use small amounts of manpower to tie down huge amounts of Union manpower in these kinds of operations. Historian Jeffrey Hummel explains that guerrilla warfare in the West happened by default after the main conventional Confederate defenses failed, and that despite its effectiveness, including efficiency of cost and manpower, quote, guerrilla warfare would remain nothing but a last unpleasant resort for the South's West Point-dominated command to be discarded whenever resources permitted, end quote. So, while Grant's forces were being forced to turn back because of cavalry raids, meanwhile Sherman, unaware due to being out of contact of the fact that Grant's army was having to call off their entire operation, continued to move on Vicksburg. And at the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou, Sherman launched a series of very costly frontal assaults on Confederate positions in the Walnut Hills, all of which failed. After several days of this, Sherman decided to throw in the towel and retreat as well. He lost over 1,700 casualties, while the Confederates had suffered fewer than 200. After that, Grant would spend the next few months, from January through March of 1863, trying to get at Vicksburg in various somewhat unorthodox ways. These become known to history as Grant's Bayou Operations. 
The intent of these projects was to try to find and or make an alternate water approach to Vicksburg and perhaps a way around it out of the range of the guns so that more of the Mississippi River Squadron could get down below, downstream of Vicksburg. And the first major one that Grant tried was to complete that DeSoto Canal across the DeSoto Peninsula. So Grant ordered Sherman's men to try to enlarge the canal, which had been begun by Farragut. And the hope, again, was that if successful, it would allow Union gunboats to cruise downriver while safely bypassing the guns of Vicksburg. The canal that had been begun under Farragut had been abandoned when it was only about six feet wide and six feet deep, so not nearly big enough to allow good-sized river transports and gunboats to get through. And Sherman was told to enlarge the canal, and the goal was that this new, what would be known as they worked on it as Grant's Canal, would ultimately be about 60 feet wide and seven feet deep. So they were working on it for quite some time, but then the water levels of the Mississippi River rose. I guess they had underestimated the seasonal water level shifts, and the water came over one of the dams that they had to keep the water at bay while the men were working on the canal. And the canal rapidly began to fill with water and sediment. Two Union steam dredgers tried to rescue the project, but Confederate artillery from Vicksburg fired on them and drove them off, so the project was abandoned. Other operations in the first three months of 1863 sought to either find an alternative navigable water route to Vicksburg through the complex waterways of the Mississippi Delta or to dig a canal, and in total, Grant tried seven projects and expeditions to do these sorts of things, all of which failed. Historians Murray and Sia write of these projects, quote, The efforts ran through waterlogged, swampy terrain covered with the tangled growth of the American wilderness and inhabited by creatures that would have delighted Tolkien. End quote. I'm not really sure. I don't know how much gators and water moccasins would have delighted Tolkien. I think of him more as kind of uh, of talking trees and shape-shifting bears sort of a guy, but whatever. What I do know for sure is that the soldiers and the sailors involved in these operations were dealing with some pretty harsh conditions. The heat, the humidity, the disease, the hostile wildlife, etc., It was not a fun experience for the men who labored on these various projects. And remember, these are boys from up north. They're not used to the heat and humidity of central Mississippi in the spring. Later on in his memoirs, Grant claimed that he hadn't really thought any of these projects were likely to succeed, but that he had conducted them mainly to keep his men occupied while they prepared for and tried to figure out something that was more likely to work. And if he's telling the truth about this, I wonder how many of those men would have appreciated knowing that fact that Grant himself didn't think a lot of these, didn't think there was a good chance that these would work as they labored in the mud and swamps of the Mississippi Delta. Maybe some of them would have rather just been idle if given the chance. So long story short, for months... Grant had tried all sorts of different methods of getting at Vicksburg, and none of them worked. Finally, in the spring of 1863, he decided to send Sherman's Corps on a faint attack to the north of Vicksburg, while Grant would march 
his army down along the west bank of the Mississippi until it was south of the city, and then crossed the river downstream of Vicksburg and approached the city in a somewhat roundabout route from the southeast. It would mean that Grant's army would not be connected to any supply lines or communications or reinforcements once they were down on the east bank below Vicksburg. In a way, Grant's army would be doing exactly what Lee had done in the east so many times by this point in the war, basically traveling light and moving fast. The Confederates had usually traveled light because they had no choice. Their supplies were usually not very good. Grant, though, as a Union general, of course, had access to seemingly endless supplies, but he chose in this instance to travel light in order to quickly move to an advantageous location and to do so without having to devote a ton of resources to guarding supply lines or to face the risk of what had happened to him on his previous overland campaign at Vicksburg. Another way in which Grant's Vicksburg campaign bore some marked similarity to some of Lee's and Jackson's operations in the East is that Grant's army was actually outnumbered by the two Confederate armies in his area if they combined together. His army was slightly larger than either of them separately, but the army of Pemberton and the army of Johnston, if combined together, would actually have, I believe, about a three to two numerical advantage over Grant's force. And so Grant would have to make sure to prevent them from uniting and to instead try to attack them one at a time, which is what he ended up doing. The success of this plan, especially the opening phases of it, depended to a large extent on having good support and assistance from the U.S. Navy's river resources, the Mississippi River Squadron, which were by then commanded by acting Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter. Now, because the separation of the Army and Navy was even greater in America uh, back in the Civil War than it is in modern times, there was no such thing as a overarching defense department under which they both were placed in the chain of command from the executive branch. Instead, you had a separate war department which dealt only with the Army and a separate Navy department which dealt only with the Navy. And so combined operations were always kind of tricky in the Civil War because the two branches of the service couldn't rely on anyone sort of making them cooperate well. And so a lot of it depended on the personal relationships between whoever was the ranking naval officer on the spot and whoever was the ranking army officer on the spot. So Grant couldn't really order Porter to do anything and had to persuade him. But luckily for Grant, the two men had a good working relationship. And in fact, Porter was personally friends with William Tecumseh Sherman and Porter quickly grasped the significance of Grant's strategy and what he was trying to do. This would require, though, Porter to have some of his transport ships and gunboats run the guns of Vicksburg, in other words, try to go past them. And so they did this in two parts. On the night of April 16th, an armada of three transports and eight gunboats began silently floating downriver past Vicksburg. They had their engines all turned off to make them silent. They took various other measures to try and make the ships as stealthy as they could, you know, covered all the lights, made sure there was no noise, and they even covered the ships with cotton bales to try and pad them as much as possible, which was a common tactic to use by river gunboats and things on both sides. And they were quietly floating down river past Vicksburg, but they ended up getting spotted. And in the artillery battle that ensued, 
Porter only lost one ship, one of the transports, which means that 10 of his 11 ships made it. Six nights later, they were able to run six more transport ships past the guns of Vicksburg, and again, only lost one. So now Porter had both gunboats and transport ships downriver of Vicksburg to meet up with and help transport and support Grant's army. Grant, meanwhile, was marching his army south on the west bank of the Mississippi River to meet up with Porter, which they did, and on the 29th and 30th of April, Grant's army was ferried across the Mississippi River, landing at Bruinsburg, Mississippi, on the eastern shore. That was the most important contribution of Porter's squadron, but they would also later contribute to the siege of Vicksburg itself. While Grant's army moved towards Vicksburg, which I think was only about 30 miles from Bruinsburg as the crow flies, but they had to take a much more roundabout route because of geography and some other things they wanted to do, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, who was a former music teacher from Illinois, now a cavalry officer, conducted, on Grant's orders, one of the most successful Union cavalry raids of the war, and possibly one of the most significant cavalry operations of the entire war on either side in terms of its strategic impact. Greer's job was to distract the Union forces in the area around Vicksburg, and also to cause them trouble in terms of messing with their communications and logistics and so on. And he did just that. Meanwhile, Grant's army was setting off on their roundabout route from Bruinsburg to Vicksburg. And Grant, who had been very depressed and frustrated during all the months leading up to this, but you know, still doggedly determined to get at Vicksburg one way or the other, was now like a duck in water. He wrote decades later in his memoirs of how good it felt to be off, to be moving on the offensive after so many months of tedium. Quote, I felt a degree of relief scarcely ever equaled since. Vicksburg was not yet taken, it is true, nor were its defenders demoralized by any of our previous moves. But I was on dry ground on the same side of the river with the enemy. All the campaigns, labors, hardships, and exposures from the month of December previous to this time had been made and endured were for the accomplishment of this one object. End quote. Like Lee's invasions of Maryland and also, around the same time Grant was closing in on Vicksburg, an invasion into Pennsylvania, Grant's army would have to live off the land to a large extent, meaning confiscating stuff from civilians. And they would supplement this with whatever supplies they could carry with them, as they quickly traveled beyond the limits of their supply lines. Murray and Sia, in their book A Savage War, describe Grant's logistics in this operation as follows. Quote, Grant broke with current military thinking in deciding to cut his lines of communication with the Mississippi River and, to the extent possible, live off the land. That decision required careful planning. The Army would carry a considerable amount of hard rations and the maximum load of ammunition. While McPherson's and McLaren's spearhead units pushed deeper into the countryside, Grant charged Porter's fleet to bring every army wagon his Teamsters could get their hands on across the Mississippi to transport the army's ammunition, medical supplies, and iron rations. In addition, he ordered the troops to scour surrounding plantations for anything that could carry supplies. 
The resulting supply train was hardly in accordance with Army regulations, consisting as it did of plantation wagons, fancy rigs, and anything else that would move. End quote. One thing I think that you really have to admire about Ulysses Grant, regardless of where you stand on other aspects of him and his career, is his ability to improvise, adapt, and overcome, and overall his stick to All that said, keep in mind that this was being done at the expense of the region's civilians, although, again, to be fair, when the Confederates invaded Union territory, they had a tendency to do the same thing as well. This was not unique to the Union. But to give you a sense of what conditions were like in this part of the Confederacy, I mean, this was a part of the Confederacy that was suffering pretty badly from all of the economic deprivations of war, and here comes this big Union army marching through, confiscating stuff left and right. Historian James McPherson writes this of Grant's army's foraging, quote, Although civilians were going hungry in Mississippi, Grant was confident that his soldiers would not. A powerful army on the move could seize supplies that penniless women and children could not afford to buy. For the next two weeks, the Yankee soldiers lived well on hams, poultry, vegetables, milk, and honey, as they stripped bare the plantations in their path. Some of these Midwestern farm boys proved to be expert foragers. When an irate planter rode up on a mule and complained to a division commander that plundering troops had robbed him of everything he owned, the general looked him in the eye and said, Well... Those men didn't belong to my division at all, because if they were my men, they wouldn't have left you that mule, end quote. Grant's army would fight and win several significant battles on the way to Vicksburg, including Port Gibson, Raymond, Jackson, Champion Hill, which is often considered the most important battle of the campaign, other than perhaps the siege of Vicksburg itself, and uh, Bridgeport. On May 9th, they approached the city of Jackson, which is the state capital of Mississippi. At Jackson, Grant attacked a Confederate force of about 25,000 under Joseph Johnston and also attacked the army near Vicksburg under Pemberton in rapid succession. Grant managed to strike at both armies without allowing them to unify together and then thus outnumber him. So, in other words, Grant successfully did what Fighting Joe Hooker had tried and failed to do at Chancellorsville. He placed his army between two factions of a divided enemy force and used interior lines and maneuver to shift from attacking one to the other while preventing the two wings of the army from combining together, which is basically a Napoleonic strategy. By May 12th, a contingent of Grant's forces had fought off Johnston's army and taken the city of Jackson, much of which they burned and destroyed. Grant then shifted his forces westward to strike at Pemberton's army, defeating them at the Battle of Champion Hill on May 16th. Pemberton's army was damaged and forced to retreat, but they held together and fled back to the fortifications of Vicksburg. Grant's army then surrounded Vicksburg, which still contained in the neighborhood of 30,000 Confederate soldiers. On May 18th, Sherman's Corps arrived and occupied the Chickasaw Bluff near Vicksburg that they'd previously been unable to take in a bloody assault. On May 19th and again on the 20th, Grant ordered direct assaults on the town of Vicksburg, but the Confederate defenses were very strong and they fended them off and Grant's army suffered heavy casualties. So Grant decided to lay siege to the city instead. 
For about a month and a half, the 30,000 soldiers and 3,000 civilians who remained in the city suffered from lack of supplies and also from daily artillery bombardments. James McPherson describes life in Vicksburg during the siege as follows, quote, By the end of June, nearly half of them were on the sick list, many with scurvy. Skinned rats appeared beside mule meat in the markets. Dogs and cats disappeared mysteriously. The tensions of living under siege drove people to the edge of madness, end quote. Joseph Johnston had initially ordered Pemberton to abandon the city and to get his army out, but Pemberton didn't think he could do so successfully, and furthermore, he wanted to adhere to the orders he'd previously been given by Jeff Davis, so he stayed put at Vicksburg. Johnston, for his part, was urged by the Confederate government to attack Grant to relieve Vicksburg, but he wasn't able to mass together sufficient troops to make an attempt on this in time before Vicksburg fell. To make matters worse, he soon learned that a Union army under Nathaniel Banks was simultaneously laying siege to the other Confederate strongholds still held by them on the Mississippi, which was Port Hudson, Louisiana. As the siege was going on in May, Jefferson Davis had a meeting with Robert E. Lee that I mentioned in the last episode I did in this series, in which the Confederate president suggested diverting some of Lee's forces to help reinforce the Confederates in the West and perhaps allow Johnston to make an attempt to relieve Vicksburg. And it was at this meeting that Lee insisted on an invasion of Pennsylvania, which he hoped would lead to the decisive victory in the East that he was always looking for, and which he thought, if he won a decisive victory in the East, would result in Grant's army being shifted East to help deal with the Confederate invasion of Pennsylvania. So ultimately, the Confederates were never able to launch any serious attempt to try to relieve Vicksburg. And on July 4th, 1863, which was one day after the end of the Battle of Gettysburg in the East, which we'll get to in an episode in the fairly near future, General Pemberton surrendered Vicksburg along with his army of approximately 30,000 Confederate soldiers. Grant had actually been planning a major assault on the stronghold of Vicksburg for the 6th, but Pemberton's men were running so low on food and other supplies, and in fact some of them were openly threatening to mutiny if he didn't surrender, that Pemberton threw in the towel and preempted Grant's assault. A northern religious newspaper called the New York Evangelist said after the surrender of Vicksburg, quote, God our deliverer. Good news thick upon us. At last, the Gibraltar of the Mississippi has fallen. End quote. The Vicksburg campaign is often considered one of the most brilliant campaigns of the Civil War, and in fact, as late as 1986, U.S. Army Field Manual 100-5 referred to it as, quote, the most brilliant campaign ever fought on American soil, end quote. To Southerners ever since, John Pemberton has been one of the most, if not the most, universally despised Confederates of all for surrendering Vicksburg. But honestly, when I look at it, I don't know what the hell else he really could have done. And while I think some of the blame perhaps should fall on Pemberton for not preparing to potentially withstand a siege and for some other decisions he made in the course of this campaign, at the same time, There's plenty of blame to go around to the other Confederate commanders in the theater and also to the Confederate government itself in terms of the decisions they made that caused the situation to ultimately end up at Vicksburg the way it did. 
But the fact that Pemberton was a Yankee made it very easy for Southerners to simply scapegoat scapegoat him and kind of imply or sometimes flat out say that he must have been some sort of a traitor. Because Vicksburg fell on 4th of July, American Independence Day, the city would not engage in any 4th of July celebrations again until World War II, almost 80 years later. Grant was promoted to Major General effective July 4th, 1863, and was on the path, but not there yet, to becoming the top Union general in the war. For the time being, he was kind of placed on hold. He wanted to target Mobile, Alabama, but Lincoln and Halleck disagreed. Some military historians argue that Grant was right to want to move on Mobile, Alabama next because of the strategic significance of Mobile as one of the ports that was still being successfully used by the Confederacy at that point in the war. What made Grant successful in this theater, in contrast to the Union Army operations up till that point in the East, was basically that he was decisive and relentless in pursuing his goals. And when one plan didn't work out, he quickly adapted to try something else. One time Grant was asked by a supply officer about whether he'd made the right decision about something, and Grant replied, No, I am not, but in war, anything is better than indecision. We must decide. If I am wrong, we shall soon find it out and we can do the other thing. But not to decide wastes both time and money and may ruin everything. Quite a contrast to somebody like George McClellan or a lot of the other Union commanders in the East. Grant also gave due credit to the Navy's contribution to his campaign, and David Dixon Porter was made permanent Rear Admiral, effective also July 4th, 1863. Now, as for Port Hudson in Louisiana, Union General Nathaniel Banks was leading that army that was laying siege there for close to two months. And like Grant with Vicksburg, he had launched a couple of attacks to just take the city by force that had failed. After the fall of Vicksburg, Grant was planning to send some of his troops down to assist with Port Hudson, but he didn't have time to execute that plan before Port Hudson also fell. On July 9, 1863, after hearing about the Confederate surrender of Vicksburg, Franklin Gardner, who was the Confederate general in charge of the forces at Port Hudson, decided to throw in the towel as well and surrendered Port Hudson and his force of over 6,000 Confederate soldiers. The Union military now had virtually complete control of the Mississippi River and its major tributaries and had succeeded in forcing two large Confederate armies to surrender. And in the process, by seizing the Mississippi and knocking out the last couple of Confederate strongholds, they had cut the Confederacy in two. They now controlled the superhighway of that region of North America, which is the Mississippi watershed. Battles in the east, such as Gettysburg, may have gotten more public attention in the summer of 1863 and in the popular mind ever since. But Grant himself later wrote, quote, The fate of the Confederacy was sealed when Vicksburg fell. End quote. And most modern experts on this war are inclined to agree with him. That said, the war was far from over, and in many ways, it was going to get even uglier over the next 21 months. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. 
Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.